Uh-oh, it looks like we piqued your interest in the hideout. First of all, let me tell you what the hideout is not. The hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap in to the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business, strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever meet them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything, joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, you'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast where attitude is everything. I believe that if there was a person or a DNA that would embody this show and a guest on this show, it'd be this man here um, mm -hmm. because he is uh, a speaker. He's a CEO. He's a founder. He's a, a former Green Beret. But when I asked him his title, he said human. And it's amazing because most of the time with a person with a, a laundry list like he has of accomplishments, with Broughton Hotels, Broughton Hospitality, and being in the places where he has, most of the time people would beat their chest and say, you need to say this about me. And what Larry said to me, I'm just a human. And it blew me away because the time that we had in the 15 minutes before we started recording, it has just been amazing. I forced this guy to be my friend, and you guys are going to hear about it. We were in the backyard of a friend of ours, and it was an amazing, amazing scene. And I grabbed a hold of him, and I mean, the stature of him, the man that he is, but I got to meet him with his beautiful daughter, Emmy. Mm -hmm. And I could see that as strong and as, as amazing as this man was, as much accomplishments, he looked at her and he absolutely melted. And that's what attracted me to him. That's why I wanted to have him on the show. And that's why I'm so honored to be able to have an American hero and uh, just an absolute juggernaut in every single thing that he does on the show. So please welcome Mr. Larry Broughton to the podcast. <laughs> Kelly, you're amazing. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that. And I love your that um, little bumper thing there with, with the hideout. It just so resonates with me because I used to be that guy who chased success at all costs, you know, my boot needed to be on your throat <laughs> if I was going to succeed. And I realized, you know, a bunch of years ago that that just drove my life right off a cliff. And so what I tell people now is if you want to reach any kind of level of success, stop chasing success and instead seek a life of significance, mm. play a significant life in the role of your family of your place of worship, if that's your bag, in your community, in your business. How about in your family? 
and success is the byproduct of a life of significance. And so it sounds like we are kindred spirits when it comes <laughs> to this uh, this uh, journey that we're on. So thanks for forcing me to be your friend. <laughs> we're going to have a great journey together, I think. Well, Larry, Larry, let's go right right into that, man, because I think a lot of All times right. when you hear people talk about significant significance or even mm. when I talk about joy, um, people are like, that's fluffy, man. I need the brass tacks. I need the, the bottom line. It needs mm. to have an ROI. When did you realize this um, as far as the significance part and that success, you know, the boot on the neck was not something that was going to be sustainable in your life? Well, honestly, I've been getting clues of this from the universe, Gaia, God, whomever, honestly, since I was a young kid, but it was so counterintuitive, right? Because everyone was always telling you all this other stuff, you know, um, and but it really hit home. For the first time, um, shortly after I got out of the military, but then it culminated in a divorce um, that I just did not really want to happen. Um, and I said to myself, I don't know if you've ever been in a recovery program, but I'm sure plenty of your listeners have, where they say, your best efforts got you here. <laughs> and my best efforts got me to a divorce, to financial ruin crappy relationships or no relationships with friends, loneliness, isolation. I need that knew I needed to do something differently. So it's like, why not try this other approach? And um, so that was it. And it was a long journey. You know, it's like journeys don't happen overnight. Yeah. Click. It's a long and there are ups and downs and through valleys. And, and the truth is it's, we all want these mountaintop experiences that you see on the memes. <laughs> The hands raised in the air and victory and the front seat full of cash and the fancy watch. But that's not where the growth happens, right? You know, if you think about the valley, the valley, I think about this from my special forces days, the valley is where all the weeds and the underbrush are, but that's where all the growth is. It's, it's slow moving when you're moving through. I don't know if you've ever been a hiker or a hunter or any of those kind of things. It's hard. It's slow moving through that, through that stuff. Right. Um, and so unless you can get on a path that winds through it, which I relate that those paths are oftentimes kind of carved out by mentors and by, you know, people with more experience than you are. But if you've ever done any kind of mountaineering, those summit experiences, it's barren. There's nothing up. Nothing's growing up there. You get up there by yourself, you lift your hands in the air and you look around and there's really no one there to, <laughs> <laughs> to cheer you on. So, so it's, Larry, a, it's, a, it's a long journey. Larry, talk to me too about, uh, I think that there's seems to be two, two sides that I see after a military career. And especially like, I mean, not everyone in the military is in the special forces, but I mean, mm -hmm. so you have a little bit different view on it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times when people transition into norm, like the normal society, right? You Whatever see, that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how normal it is, but when we when when the transition happens out of the military, yeah. I generally see two extremes. I see one that it's kind of like, oh wow, I I don't kind of know what to do because I had all this structure and now it's gone. And then I see the other side that, you know, and I'm not saying that your success has been by overnight because we know that it hasn't. But yeah. there's people who then start to fly in circles that are you know, that transcend. 
can you help us to understand like the the difference between the two and and what what state or what steps a person could take when they come out of the military that they can utilize the things that they had to be able to to press on it's a really broad question i I get where you're going with this but one of my mantras is reality is our friend Mm. and um the reality is though there is a broad level of experiences as there are humans that come out of it the the military does a much better job today kelly than they did say 25 years ago 30 years ago as far as helping the service members transition into their civilian life they now have a called the tap program a transition assistance program and i would encourage anyone who's actually currently in the military um, to participate in that because some just kind of phone their performance in but they try to help you understand you know do you want to go into do you want to go to school do you want to pursue a career that might kind of match up with your what your military occupational specialty was do you want to become an entrepreneur they've got a great training program there and in fact i was one of the co-authors of the uh the boots to business program um that helps those folks uh in, in that kind of space but to me kelly it's more about the attitude of the uh now veterans who are transitioning than than anything else what I've seen is two different camps as well, but they're a little bit different. I see the sense of entitlement camp in that, hey, I'm going to continue. I'm going to fight on. I'm going to, you know, tap into that grit and tenacity that I had while I was in the military, and I'm going to apply that to the civilian life. Anyone who has a sense of entitlement tends to get ground down and eaten up by the transition, you know? Um, so, I would encourage folks to tap into a lot of the resources that, that are out there, but get into, you know, groups that are where there's like-minded people. That's the best thing you do. You know, we're built for community. We really are as humans. Um, and too many of us try to do this lone wolf stuff because it makes for great romance novels or great <laughs> movies. Right. But it's not reality. Nobody lives life, survives life on their own. They just don't. And in the military, snipers have sniper buddies. If you're on a dive team, you got a dive buddy. You're always with someone. But the problem is there are so few veterans out there that less than 8% of our population are vets. Wow. Less than 8%. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think that most civilians, and I'm using civilians, people who have not served, cannot relate to veterans and the veteran mindset because when we had a draft not that i'm advocating for a draft but there are good sides to the draft as well when you have a draft and most people are serving then every family has a direct contact with someone who has served a father a brother a sister or a neighbor at the worst right but usually it's a family member but nowadays when you survey the population most people do not have a direct relationship with a veteran so what does well what does that do? We are much more likely to deploy troops when it's not going to directly impact my family. Oh, right. Yeah. We are much more likely to serve and support those folks who are having trouble after getting out if we know that that's going to impact my family. But if I don't have a relationship with you, that's somebody off in the distance. They don't really need it. You don't care about them as much. So I think that there's an obligation on both sides. There's an obligation as the veteran not to have a sense of entitlement. There's the obligation to reach out and actually get into a community that serves and supports you. 
And I think we have an obligation as a society to serve those folks who are willing to step into the leadership gap to pick up the sword in our defense. I think we owe them something. I don't think we owe them everything, but we do owe them something, you know, um, and, and I'll just round it out with this, Kelly, is that because most folks don't know a veteran, they have this sense, many, not all, many have this sense that these veterans, these military folks are just a bunch of killers and they're mean spirited and they hate people. And, you know, they've got inferiority complexes and they're taking it out on these poor foreigners. I can tell you this. I have been blessed if I was, since I was in the special operations community to serve with and know and become friends with some of the biggest, baddest, biggest swinging things out there who are walking the planet and they are not haters. They're also the most caring and loving people you'll ever meet. You've met some of these, some of these folks and you don't volunteer to lay down your life for your country and to do some of the stuff that we've had to do. I'm getting emotional to do the stuff that we do when you hate people. You don't, you do it because you love people. You love our country. You love our way of life. You love your brother and sister to your right and your left. You love your family so much. You're willing to lay down your life, right? Haters don't do that. Haters retract. Haters go in the closet, right? They hide. So please, if you're watching this and you're one of these people, go introduce yourselves to a veteran and have a real conversation with them. Scratch the surface a little bit. And I think that you'll see that these are very loving, caring people. Larry, how do you shift into different mode? Like when I said that, you know, when I was given the your introduction, I saw you shift. I saw it happen hmm. the first time that we met. I mean, you were t we were talking, and you were Larry, yeah. and and Larry's a Larry's a big guy. Larry, yeah. For those of you watching, like we're about the same size on the video, but that ain't in person. <laughs> I'm sitting on the floor, right? And, now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> He's Indian style. I'm I'm sitting all the time, uh, all the time. And so, I um, but I watched it, and mm. I watched the countenance of you change, and it was just it was a ninety degree shift in your vision. And I remember talking to Emmy, I shifted and I talked to Emmy and I said, I want you to realize and tell him every day how much you love him. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me, she's like, you, I just met you. Why are you trying to just do this? And I was like, because for me, it's coming up on a year when that figure, that monster of a figure, that, that mountain of a man that's standing next to you, that used to stand next to me, went away. Yeah. And I, but, and when you turned 90 degrees and you looked at Emmy you changed like yeah. you, it, it was like a shift. How did you train yourself from being in special forces and being in places where you had to act and stuff like that to be able to go into that mode? Cause a lot of times people shut it off. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to be that person. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I was an automaton for much of my life. I was basically a robot and I used to have this false belief, Kelly, that if I was vulnerable, then I was weak. And that is not something I wanted to show to, to, to anyone. Um, the truth is, is, it takes great courage to be vulnerable. It takes great courage to be authentic and transparent. Um, well, why is that? Well, because that means you got to feel something. <laughs> that means that people are likely going to judge you or um, make 
snap decisions uh, about you. What I've learned over the years, Kelly, is that the more I do that, the more courageous I become. It's like any muscle, right? The more you use it, the the stronger you get in it. Um, I've seen the benefits from it. That's how I've learned to do it over over the years. I I'm one of these people. I, I wish I learned from positive encouragement. I tend to be one of those people that I have to hit bottom and scrape along for me to actually learn a, a lesson. Right. Um, and so I learned it through therapy. I learned it through having mentors. I learned it through having a spiritual mentor. I learned it through doing seminars and uh, events or going to them with people who were further down the path than I was or am. Um, but truly it just took courage. Courage is one of those things that is oftentimes misunderstood. Um, you know, it takes courage to have difficult conversations. How many times in our lives have we cowered and not had a difficult conversation with our loved ones or our significant other or a team member or an employee um, because there was going to be a hard conversation? But then when we look back and reflect on it, oh, man, if I would have had that difficult conversation then, I wouldn't have the big problems that I'm having right now. So as I had said earlier, I'd realized my best efforts got me to where I was and that wasn't working. Well, darn it. I need to try something else. And so I had a therapist who said, why don't you have these difficult conversations with your spouse? Why don't you share this with your whatever person uh, in your life? So I allow myself to feel. And so I've, I've already said on here once, you know, oh, I'm getting going to get emotional uh, on this. There was a time in my life where I never would have said that. I never would have even let that come out. But you wouldn't see the ups and downs of my personality either. It would have been Mr. Monotone, probably. Nobody wants to be around that that type of person, right? Um, and oftentimes, I have found, Kelly, that when I'm willing to have the guts to tap in to be a little bit vulnerable, it gives the other person the permission to do the same thing. And then all of a sudden, we're humans. You know, I'm not the CEO communicating with the podcast host. We're like, yeah, let's do it, man. <laughs> let's go on this journey together. Right. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're part of an affinity group. You know, we're just living life together. Now that doesn't mean that I can't flip the switch. Like if someone were to, if I saw somebody coming after my daughter, you'd see a different side of me and it would power up. It would, I mean, it would be the monster, you know, that it needed to be. Yeah. Right. But I don't need to walk around earth banging my chest, pounding my chest or whatever it is, or stomping into a room. There's a time for that. And by the way, I realized on this side of my life, that was, it's a hard way to live. It's a hard way. Now, do I feel much more deeply? Do I hurt more often now? Yes. But it's so much easier. That's the dichotomy of this thing, right? That's the strange thing. Um, yeah, but when I'm feeling up, it just fuels me so much more. It's it's like, I don't know, it's just this amazing energy that I get. Like walking away that night when, when you and I met, um, I had so many positive interactions with people that night. I was on a high. I couldn't sleep that night. My daughter was like a chatterbox the whole whole way home because she was nervous going there. You know, she's 21 years old. And there, there's all these, what she thought, grownups <laughs> that, that were there <laughs> at this amazing event, right? 
And, um, but it took courage for her to do that. So I would just say courage. It's how I do it, you know, and I would encourage people to do the same thing. There, there's a saying in the military, in the army, um, that says, choose the hard right over the easy wrong. Mm. Right. Choose the hard right over the easy wrong. The hard right is to have the guts to get vulnerable when I need to, but who wouldn't look no, I shouldn't say who wouldn't cause I didn't used to, but you can't look at your 21 year old daughter who's just blossoming in life and experience all kinds of things and not say, wow, what an amazing human this person's turned out to be. Right. Cause you just see all of the potential in her. Right. And I've always considered that my job as a leader, as a father is to help my kids, to help my team members move as close as possible to their fullest potential. Mm. Right, because you think about the graves around the world that are just met, they're just filled with unmet potential. Mm -hmm. How would how would the world be different if we all got a little bit closer <laughs> to our fullest potential? Right, it'd, it'd be a pretty dramatic shift in the in the universe, I think. So. Larry, you seem to have a great relationship with your daughter, and and I've got a thirteen year old, and like, help us with this because you have this this kind of stoic wisdom. Um, but I love the fact that you said, if somebody went to harm my daughter, then other Larry is coming to the table. Yeah, like right. you're turning green and you're, you're going to uh, rip your jeans and you're going yeah, in. Right. Um, like talk to us about that because I, I'm, I'm on the precipice. I, I haven't had really had to deal with boys in my, yeah. I mean, how do you deal with boys knowing that, I mean, literally like you could eliminate any one of them that came into her life <laughs> how do you how do you choose and how do you keep that kind of balance well i'm going to th throw a couple of funny things out here first <laughs> and then i'll be serious i remember her being a child when i was still married to her, her to her mom and we'd see you know um the guy on the motorcycle and the tattoos on the street and she would say oh emily you need to date him he looks so nice you know because we knew that what we told her to do, she wouldn't do. So, <laughs> so we did that. And then, um, there, there were a couple of, uh, veterans day and Memorial day celebrations at my kid's school where they had asked me to come speak. Right. And so I made sure that word got out that I was a former green beret to these kids who were going to be dating my daughter. Right. So I, <laughs> I didn't need to introduce myself when they came to the house. Right. They, they already knew the backstory on it. Um, <laughs> So, but the truth is this, um, we just loved on our kids as much as humanly possible when they were younger, because so many studies have shown that the more you love on your child, not coddle them, I mean, love them, allow them to make mistakes, allow them, allow them to explore, but to love them, not tell them, Hey, you can be anything you want. Cause you're talking about the stoic stuff, right? Well, this is where this comes from, right? Um, but just to make sure that they feel loved because the more love they feel, the more confident they feel, the more confident they feel, the less they're going to go outside for this positive validation, which oftentimes is drugs, alcohols, promiscuous sex, all those types of things. Um, but um, I have always told my kids that I don't care what situation you get in. Literally, I don't care what situation you're, you're in. If you feel like you're in danger or you're in an uncomfortable situation, you call me and I will be there and I will ask no questions. I don't care what time of the day or night it is. I will just get you out of that situation. And if you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. But like, so what I wanted them to know is, Hey, if you're drinking, you know, don't be ashamed that, um, and you're underage, um, 
that dad's going to ground me if that happens. Oh, we're going to talk, <laughs> but it's better that I just, they know that I will be there no matter what the question, no, no matter what it is. And I remember my, my daughter doing that one time. She was like 13 and she was with a friend who was this model and she was getting national modeling contracts and they were together. Um, Emmy was spending the night at, at her house and the next thing you know, they're out on this balcony in Newport Beach and some college kid comes up and wanted to come into the house. A boy, man, young man, 13 year old girls. Yeah. So Emmy called me. Um, can you come get me? Yeah, no problem. I'm there. I didn't know what happened until a couple of days later when she told me. All I said, are you safe? Yes, but I'm not comfortable right now. So I guess that's kind of how I've done it. And it just, it's one of those things where you never know, Kelly, if it's, if what you're doing is registering. Um, can I just riff for another minute here? Yeah, go, man. So um, I shared this with you when we met and it just seems like it's relevant right now. So my son, my 17 year old son was killed in a car accident uh, less than a year ago. Um, and, um, you know, there's some, Obviously, there's an amazing relationship between a father and a daughter that just can never be <laughs> duplicated, right? But there's also a very unique bond between a father and a son, your namesake, right? And I looked at him like he's going to be the legacy, right? He's carrying on the family name. Um, and so obviously, I invested a lot of time in, in him as well, but in a different different way. And I was always trying to teach him little lessons, you know, in life. You know, simple things like... <laughs> never take the stairs when you're walking into the pool or you're going into the pool, simple things like that, you know, um, stand up when you introduce somebody, look somebody in the eye when you shake their hand, be the first person to, in, to introduce yourself. If there's a new kid in class, you know, simple things like that. We had a whole list, you know, uh, we talked about being the duck, you know, what does that mean? Well, they say paddle like hell underneath the water, but on top be cool as a cucumber, right? Like be the lion, right? What, well, what does that mean? It means like rest when you can, you know, um, be diligent on the hunt, um, fill your gut when you can, you know, protect the pride. So we'd have those little kind of conversations. And then during his celebration of life ceremony, I was just blown away at how beautiful this thing was. 13 of his buddies got up there on stage and all came up and talked about the lessons that they had learned from this 17 year old kid and many of them had grown up with him. You know, they met when they were five years old or four years old. And many of them got up there and gave examples of those exact things that I just shared with you that he would, Hey, I was the new kid in class and Ben came up and he was the first one to come up and introduce himself and, and invite me into his friend group. Um, all the things I just listed, they gave examples. So you sometimes wonder as a parent, are the lessons I'm trying to teach really getting through? Well, oftentimes they do. But it's like anything, you got to do it over and over and over again. You got to say it, you got to represent it. You can't just, hey, I told you once, right? If that were the case, the rooms would always be clean, right? The errands would always be done. But it's like ourselves, we have to remind ourselves every day of the important things in life. So Thank, thanks for letting me share that. Well, Larry, I mean, this is this is you, man. This is, this is about you. And I'd like to stay there for a second because okay. there's there's so many people out there that um, it's not natural to bury a son or daughter, and I have I have a couple of friends um, very dear to That's me, right. 
um, that, that did about a year and a half ago also. Mm. And um, you going through it, like a lot of people will, will say things to you. And I remember hearing my friend and it's like, there's nothing really that you can say to me at this time. Um, speak to those parents out there. Yeah. That maybe it's just happened. You're you're almost a year in. Yeah. Speak to them. Well, the first thing I have to say is I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. There's really nothing I can say except that um, the truth is that since reality is our friend, your life will never be the same. It, it just won't. So don't try to get it back. If that doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments of joy and laughter and you know victories and those types of things but it's not going to be the same it just won't you know i miss them every day um and um but don't isolate whatever you do do not isolate you know lick your wounds for a little bit you know but try to just get out there and live live i have realize now, and this is the airy-fairy stuff that we're kind of talking, the crunchy granola stuff. I've realized now that as I go through the day, um, there are th plenty of things that remind me of him. And I tend to think that that's him kind of giving me a little wink and a nod and a nudge. Hey, I'm here. I got you. And there's times I feel his presence, right? Um, there are support groups that are out there. Um, there, there is therapy. I would really encourage folks to get into whether it's talk therapy or EMDR, whatever the circumstance that could help you do it. Um, and depending on what the circumstance is, there may be post-traumatic stress that's wrapped up in the, the child's passing. But I agree with you that that's not, that's not the way the earth is designed <laughs> for a parent today's in the 20 whatever century we're in, um, 21st century, to be burying our children. You know, I remember, so I have, um, my parents lost two children early. One was, they were twins, as it turns out. I have two sets of twins in my family. I'm a twin, but I also had an older set of twins, my older brothers. One died at two. Um, and, you know, that's crushing, right? And then one died when he was 34. And I remember my parents just like, you know, when my older, when Brian died at 34, they were crushed. And for years later, I would go home and they'd, I'd walk in, you know, walk in the, the door and they'd be sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee at four o'clock in the afternoon, just looking at the picture of my brother on their kitchen table. And I was like, what are you doing? This is the old automaton, Larry. What are you doing? Come on. Really? It was three weeks ago. No, it was three years ago. <laughs> really? You're still doing this? I didn't have empathy mm. then for them. I was the automaton. I knew that they were hurting and I didn't have it in me, Kelly, to just console them because it made me uncomfortable. I didn't have the courage to sit down and console them because that meant I was going to have to be soften up a little bit. Now, believe me, I have prayed about this. I've asked my parents for forgiveness. I've asked God for forgiveness because <laughs> now, oh, I see it. I see how dark it gets. Because uh, for those parents who are going through this right now, yeah, I came, I was, I had to be, listen, I was the guy who first came upon the accident 
I was there before the first responders were there. I was there before the police were there. I was there. It was nightfall and cars are just driving by. But I was the first one to see him, to touch him. You know, that is a kick in the groin. I've seen some pretty nasty stuff in my life, but to come upon your son in this condition and no one else is there to buffer it, that was pretty rough. But I was the one who had to call the police, call my, call his mom, call, you know, uncles and friends and that kind of thing. No, they were doing it as well. But so I had to keep my shit together. Sorry for that. I had to keep my stuff together, you know, during this. And then I had to go over to the moms. I had to be with my daughter and or her moms. Um, and um, that was a, a heartbreak. But I would come home and I would break down and I would swear at God and I would yell at God. What the stuff that I can't say here. I was pissed. I was pissed and I let him know it. But you know what? The way I look at God, he's got big enough shoulders to handle it. You know, there are plenty of characters in the Bible who would get pretty pissed off at God as well. And he didn't smite them dead. You know, And so that's what I kept reminding myself. God, I love you, but what the hell are you doing? And I, I said that like, it should have been me. This kid was... I've done some pretty stupid, I should be dead or in jail. This kid has started his entire life in front of him. So all of this is normal. I guess is what I'm telling parents. The stuff that you're feeling is normal and no one can tell you otherwise. And I'll wrap up with this. These five stages of grief that you think you're supposed to be going through, it's a crock of crap. It just is. Grief is more like an ambush than some five clean steps. All right. When you do a little bit of research on these five stages of grief, those were developed by, I think it was a clinical psycho psychologist who was trying to help his patients who were terminally ill deal with their own passing. It had nothing to do with family members or anything else. It was helping people who knew they were going to die deal with it on their own. Right. So, but people being lazy as they are started adapting it and say, well, gosh, somebody came up with this. There's five stages of grief. I guess I need to go through bink, bink, bink. But the truth is you're not going to know when you're going to get hit with waves of grief. It is much more like an ambush than any kind of five stages of thing. You may be, may be in a meeting at work and you get overcome by it. You may see a Hallmark <laughs> uh, movie uh, commercial and it's going to touch you. You might see a phone commercial and it's going to touch you. You just never know where it's going to come from or when it's going to come. But just the what I do now when I get them, I just, I acknowledge it. Yeah, that's, that touched me right there. I'm acknowledging it and I'm letting it go. So don't expect that it's going to be easy. It's not. It's going to be, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be messy. And it's going to last a long time. How did it affect your relationship with not only your daughter, but other people in your life where when you go through this challenge, it's it, did it did it put you in a place where there was a lot of things that you thought were important that weren't that important that you oh were focusing gosh. on before? Yeah, yeah. And I've had these situations before in life. Like I said, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> when, when my brother when my brother Brian died, um, I was closer to him at the time than I was to my twin brother, and so that just knocked me down. And I was kind of at the early stages of you know building a. a my entrepreneurial career and 
I was out there hustling and doing all this stuff that ugh, makes me, gives me heebie-jeebies now to even think about. <laughs> that's, that's who I used to be. Well, that's a reminder, by the way. I tell myself, one of my daily mantras, I'm not who I used to be, by the way. That's a good mantra for all of us that are kind of on the journey, right? Because sometimes those gremlins start speaking in your head. Who do you think you are? I know that you did this, right? You're laughing. So I'm assuming you can relate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, feeling it, man. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> but I'm not who I used to be. Um, so, but, so I remember when my brother passed away, I thought, oh my gosh, life is too short. I mean, you can go like that. You can be bench pressing in the gym and stand up and die. Holy smokes. That's what happened to him. Right. Um, and uh, so I thought, I, I need to reevaluate. I need to reprioritize. And so that worked for about six months. And I was right back to the old me, you know. Um, but now this was much more dramatic. Um, it was a shared experience. Again, back then when that happened, I was living by myself alone. Now, I was in, I was married at the time, but I was alone. I didn't talk about this stuff. I didn't share this stuff, right? Um, but now I intentionally live in community. For instance, every Wednesday night, I get together with three other guys, just four of us, and we do it week in and week out, no matter what's going on. If somebody's on the road, they zoom in Wow! without fail every Wednesday night. We're, now, we may move it to a Thursday, you know, from time to time, but we do not miss a week. That's part of my community. Um, Emily, well, Emmy, she goes by Emmy, my daughter, part of my community, right? I have team members now that are not just employees. They check up on me part of my community, you know, people like you check up on me. That's the way we should be living now. So because of that, there's people who bat me on the head. Hey, six months ago, you said <laughs> that you aren't going to do this anymore, dummy. <laughs> and you, I give them permission to be that direct w with me. You know, I, you're chasing success. Uh, uh, uh. So yes, when the pandemic hit, Kelly, we started this mantra uh, in our company. Every morning we do a morning stand-up. And um, part of the morning stand-up is that uh, we have to go around and we say what we're grateful for, okay? Um, and uh, we started this mantra that says, uh, offer grace, patience, and forgiveness freely and often. I'll say it again. Offer grace, patience, and forgiveness freely and often. And um, so that's one of those things that um, has helped us all not grate on each other's nerves <laughs> so much or um, give people a little bit of space when they're falling short. And what I've learned since uh, my son, Ben, uh, his transition, I call him Bullet. Um, uh, since Bullet transitioned, I've had to say that mantra as much for me as for anybody else that's in my sphere of influence. I have to offer myself grace. I have to offer myself patience. I have to offer myself forgiveness freely, which means there's no strings attached and often. And I mean like multiple times a day, right? So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not chasing the dollar as much. I'm really trying to chase relationships much more. And I'm trying to truly lead a life of significance. I, the universe will, will reward that. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I don't care anymore. Wow. I just don't care. 
Larry, I want to I want to talk to you about this. I want to go a little bit further in on this because yeah. as a kid growing up in Lompoc, California, if you're mm-hmm. if you're from Lompoc, you know, and you're representing the 805. And I just want to shout out to everybody <laughs> in Lompoc, third, all 35,000 of you. Uh-huh. And uh, but when I grew up, I, I my dad listened to a lot of Zig Ziglar, uh, Norman yeah. Vincent Peale, um, sure. Ken Ken Blanchard, and it, uh, Stephen Covey. It's crazy because now, mm-hmm. like a lot of those guys have been on the podcast. And I used to get mad at what you just said. Um, the reason why is because from where I was seeing in, in Lompoc in a one-bedroom apartment with five people, when a person would be like, I'm not chasing the almighty dollar. And what I would say in my heart, and I want to be honest with you here, and I haven't really said this to, to anybody, but what I would say in my heart is that that's easy for you to say because you got a lot of money. That's easy mm-hmm. for you to say because you've already hit that mountaintop. Sure. And for you to look down and be like, well, it ain't about money. In my head, at, in, in a, a one-bedroom apartment with five people, I was like, but it's about money for me right now. That's right. I now understand a different perspective. Can you help that person to maybe yeah. understand that? Yeah. Yeah, so two things in there. Um in transparency, I have lost everything in the last three years. Now, when I say everything, I mean everything. I'm living in a rented house right now. I cashed out my um, all of my retirement to keep my company going. I haven't collected a payroll since February of 2020. All right? So, all right? So, I get what it's like to want and need, right? And to wonder, in spite of all of my accomplishments, all right, um, I count the pennies right now in my life, but I don't have the fear that I used to have either, right? I know the world is going to take care of me, the universe, and that's the hardest thing to do. Believe me, I have the calm I'm talking right now is not the calm I may have had six months ago. I still have moments of like desperation. God, what are you doing to me? You know? Um, I can say this though, just because I'm saying don't chase the almighty dollar doesn't mean you should not be busting your rear, putting in the effort, putting in the work, doing the grind, becoming a better version of yourself. These are not mutually exclusive concepts. They are complementary concepts. You must be be dedicated to lifelong learning if you're going to have any kind of modicum of success or significance. Right. If you're just a drain on society, what kind of significant role are you going to play in anyone's life? You're just not. You have to be a better version of yourself. The Greeks, you mentioned Stoics earlier, the Greeks called this concept arete, the pursuit of excellence in everything that we do. How would life be different if we pursued excellence, not perfection, perfection, excellence in everything that we do? Life would be a whole lot different for us. All right. So if you know that I'm just doing an excellent job today, I'm, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to perform in an excellent fashion, this conversation I'm going to have, I go on this podcast, I'm going to do the best that I can, I'm going to be as excellent as I can. I know I'm going to make foibles and errors, but I bet it'll be an excellent podcast at the end of it because you and I are both showing up and putting our effort in, right? You still have to have effort. This, whole, this is where the concept, of this whole secret concept that people are now finally starting to understand, you can't just manifest things and then sit back and open the windows and expect the money's going to come in. You still have to grind. You still have to be tenacious. You still have to learn. You still have to serve. One of the mantras that 
my former team daddy in special forces said is this, um, serve first, lead second, stay humble. This is from a Green Beret guy who'd been in for a bunch of years, right? Who is one of the big swinging blanks on, on the planet. And he said, serve first, stay humble. How about that? So I think it's a pretty good mantra for life. So I think that you don't, ha I don't think that you have to um, just be thinking about money all the time. Serve, grind, become a better version of yourself. And I think that, um, you know, the little, the money thing will take care of itself. It will. Wow. But you got to be excellent. You can't be mediocre. Medio mediocrity equals death. Mm. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Larry, Larry, how were you able to, because I, I find that, say, like my, with my pop early on, he was, in, he was in the military. He wasn't in special forces. He was in the Air Force. And with my pop, my pop grew up in a, um, I mean, I don't even know how many people were in his town. It was like a mining town. He's, he was a young guy. He was only 68 years old. Uh, yeah. and he passed, so this year he'll be 69. Um, but he's a young guy. And up until yeah. he was 13 years old, he didn't have uh, hot running water. Yeah. I mean, so he just, it wasn't that it wasn't available. He, they just didn't have it. And so yeah. all these things that he went through with us as kids growing up, a lot of times he couldn't understand why we were moaning and complaining that we had to mow the lawn because he had to chop the wood and, you know, do a wood burning stove and, and bathe in a galvanized steel bucket with six other siblings. And he was the youngest. So, you know, he had to last. bathe the last, right? How are you able to, and how did you develop that empathy? Because say Emmy, when she comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm having this huge problem. And you're like, what's the problem? And she's like, you know what? I, my Wi-Fi is not working right now. And you're like, I have been in war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do you how do you transition and have that empathy? And how do you work that empathy as you go? Well, um, I keep saying, you know, I'm not who I used to be, but the old me would have been, oh, come on. And I would like rub their nose in it. But the truth is I'm the one who chose to ha help her or have her grow up in Orange County, California. <laughs> All right. So much of that is by my own doing. Okay. So, but what I learned to do early on with both of my kids, knowing that they were, you know, with parents who made a good amount of money, they had a nice home to live in. They were never going to go hungry. You know, they are raised in a county where the sun always shines. If it gets above 80 or below 60, people complain, you know, they're living a pretty good life, um, is that I was going to expose them to other ways of life. And so we started, I started taking them to Mexico at a young age. Um, we talk about the challenges that a lot of people are having in life. Um, they knew that um, on an annual basis, I was going to Zimbabwe at least once a year. Um uh, on doing mission trips and they would see the pictures. And when I got back from how that, how that went, I did not shade them from the dark side of the world. I would communicate, communicate it to them in love. I didn't do it just for shock value, but to say, boy, what a blessed life we live. Mm. I want you to just recognize that, you know, um, but Kelly, what, I, what we're talking about here takes work. It takes effort. <laughs> and so many of us just want to, we, we might be breeders. We might have pumped out a few kids 
and we just expect that they're going to raise themselves because we put them on Wi-Fi, but then we don't, I don't know, buy into the responsibility that it's our job to make them be great humans afterwards. It's our job. Our job is to make them be, not to be their friends. This is my, by the way, everything I'm saying today may be wrong. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the disclaimer we're going to put on the podcast. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I think it's, I'm not, my job right now or then raising them was not to be my children's friend. My job was to be their parent, to be their father. Their mother was going to help protect them if they fell down. I was going to prepare them. I was going to take them out to do the risky things. You know, I was going to have them climb the rope without a net to climb on the, the tree branches, those types of things, but to also expose them to some ugly things so that they had, they knew that they um, could fall and get hurt. Right. So I don't know. I just, I, there are a lot of people that parent the way I wouldn't parent. They sit their kids down and they, they don't invest in them. But I saw my kids as like my biggest investment possible. And I'll, I'll tell you this, even after my divorce, my assistant will confirm this. My business partners will confirm this. On the days that I had my kid, we had 50, 50 custody. I was invested in those darn kids. Mm. And even when I didn't have them, we were texting, we were calling, we were still involved, but it's not like, like I didn't date. They didn't meet people that I was with. When I, when I had my kids, I was invested. We were doing stuff. Yeah. And I didn't do it perfectly, but you've met Emmy. She's a pretty amazing person that people pick up on right away. Right. So, um, I would just say, be involved, be engaged, be intentional. I don't know. Larry, uh, let's, I want to go to, I want to go to the marriage and to the divorce because I don't think that a lot of people, um, especially as men, you know, Mm. we, we, we kind of glaze over it or we'll talk about it. We'll be like, I was married. I was divorced. Oh, it costs. I I, I say this jokingly because I was married before and I'm like, Oh, it cost me a lot of money. Um, yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, and, but a lot of times people don't sit back and we don't get the, the, the wise advice of like the, the blind spots that, that the kids that are in the relationships right now and they're in a marriage. Now, when I see it, like I'll see a friend like the other day and I'll just give you a quick example. Yeah. One of my friends, um, both of them were working. And then they had a child and she hadn't been working for a little bit. And I asked him, because uh, he had just started his own company. And I said, do you have your wife on payroll? And he said, well, what do you mean? I, well, she has money and we have an account and we both can draw from it. I said, no, does she get a paycheck? And this was a piece of advice that Kelly, you know who, you're, uh, who you are out there, a friend of mine. She pulled me aside when I first got married. She said, whatever you do, pay your wife a paycheck into her own account no matter what, and it's her money, and allow her to do that because when she has a child and she's not working, she's going to feel like she's not contributing. And I told him that, and he was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's all of our money anyway. And I, and I said, but she, if she has to ask you so she could buy a pair of shoes, things yeah. are going to change in your relationship. And yeah. so when I – and he was just like – he was kind of blind to it. We talked about it a little bit, and he was like, oh, wow, that makes a little bit of sense. I don't know if he did it. But I can see that blind spot right off the bat because then sure. we walked into the house, Larry – and we started talking with his wife and his wife was like, yeah, I wanted that pair of shoes, but I, you know, I asked you if I could have them. And I looked yeah. at him and I was like, do you see it? 
you can see things so much clearer once you've been through it. Let's talk about the blind spots that some marriages have right now based off of the things that you went through and, and you know, you've gone through divorce. Um, yeah. And so I believe that you have the type of wisdom that you can talk about it. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for saying that. Yes, I do have more wisdom now than I did then, of course, because for, the, for those folks who don't know, wisdom comes from experience, usually from bad experiences, right? That's where wisdom comes comes from. Um, well, I can tell you some things that I would do differently, for sure. Um, I was in the habit of lying a lot to my former spouse. I choose to call her my former spouse and not my ex. Hmm. Well, why is that? Well, because to me, and this is just me, it's what I do for my own brain. X has a negative connotation. And I try to get as much negativity out of my head as possible. The truth is we both committed to each other to be a spouse of each other. And so she's my former spouse, right? Um, but I would lie about finances. I would lie about meetings. I would lie about things. I thought to protect her. That's what I thought I was doing. You know, like if we had a diff difficult financial time or if a contract didn't come through, you know, I would either shade the truth or just lie about it. Um, and so I didn't give her the opportunity to support me the way she probably would have wanted to. And additionally, um, we talked about it earlier a little bit. I lack the courage to have difficult conversations with her about a lot of things, you know, and um, like if there were, you know, there were times when shame, guilt, insults were kind of, I feel like intentionally thrown my way, but you know, knowing her, like I know her now, just like I was not a good communicator back then. She probably didn't even know that this is how, uh, I was receiving this stuff. So, um, I would encourage you if you are considering a divorce or you're having a tough time in your marriage, have the difficult conversation. Do it out of love. Remember why you fell in love with this person. And um, I had a therapist tell me one time, um, when you sit down with her, imagine that you're talking to the four-year-old version of her. Use mm -hmm. that kind of tone. Look at her through those eyes, right? Um, and, um, and give her an opportunity to respond and to learn and to, and to grow with you. Um, but I didn't have the guts to do it back then. Now, I don't know if you know this, but 75% of all divorces are instigated by women, not by men. Um, now, in our situation, I was the first one to bring it up, though. And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I've got to admit this. Um, I'm the first one who brought it up to shut her up. How bad of a person do you have to be to do that? So I threatened divorce to keep her quiet. But you know what it really did? I, I used it as a weapon, right? It planted a seed in her. I can't trust this guy. What, is he going to run out on me? And so now I can see that she started the wheels turning behind the scenes because she had to protect herself for crying out loud. I wasn't being honest with her. I wasn't communicating with her. I'm sure she could see the financial challenges that we were having, you know, because this was leading, this was around the 2008 recession, yeah. right? Um, and um, I'm sure she felt like, What's this guy going to do, you know? Um, and all that pressure was on me and I was losing my temper while I was at home. Um, and um, because what I would do back then, um, Kelly, is I would work, 
if I left the office, hey, what time are you going to be home? I'll be home at 6. I look at the clock at 6.15. Oh, I better get home. So I'm calling. I'm on phone calls until I pull into the driveway, and I'm on the phone call until I put my hand on the doorknob. Well, guess what version of Larry my family is getting? Right? The wheeler, the dealer, the getting shit done kind of guy. And so I had a pastor tell me at the time when I was going through this with him, he said, dude, you have to use the, you stop work the minute you touch the doorknob on the way out of your office. And the rest of the time is you're preparing yourself for your home life. You put on nice music, you contemplate, you're going to go home and see your bride. You're going to love on your kids so that when you walk in the door, you're already in a great space. Right. Um, but back then I was armed for bear, you know? When, I, when I'd walk in the door, you know, I'm, I'm going to exaggerate for a minute, but what dinner's not on the table. You know what? Socks on the floor, pick them up. That's not what I did. But I mean, that was kind of the attitude, right? So I don't know. I, I'm, I, I've been in some relationships since I can just tell you, I don't put that kind of pressure on, on people who I Im- would imagine being my future spouse. Now it's like, I choose to love you and I'm going to treat you as though I love you, you know, which is, you know, in a more tender, like I imagine now that I look at her in wonderment, like in awe, like, wow, God has gifted me with this amazing human. And I'm going to handle you as as though you're precious. That doesn't mean that she's fragile, but I'm going to treat her as a precious being who's here to compliment me, not take my place to compliment me. I'm going to compliment her and we can be equals, you know, but that doesn't mean that we're the same. (laughs) Sorry, people. (laughs) It's going to offend somebody. I'm sure. (laughs) Sorry, Kelly. (laughs) Be platformed. I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Um, But um, I take a lot of responsibility for our divorce. I don't take a hundred percent responsibility for, for our divorce because we were both broken when we got in to the marriage, you know, and we chose not to partly because of me, you know, because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be married to the guy that I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funny thing, you know? So maybe we need to ask ourselves that step back for a minute and say, would you marry you? In, in this in this frame of mind, the way you are right now, I'm gonna as long as we're going down this path, let me oh, share go. something with you that I'm totally embarrassed about, but I've shared it a few times publicly because I think it's it's maybe I'm saying this more for me than anything else. Shortly after that time that I um, told my former spouse that we needed to get divorced, um, my my kids were young and Emmy was just a, a little little tyke, and I remember. For some reason, after work one night, losing my cool, standing over her, yelling at her. Now, I'm 6'5", back then probably 240, you know, and she's this tiny little girl, you know, and I'm yelling at her, and she's looking up at me, crocodile tears coming down her face, and I had literally, not an exaggeration, literally had not a body experience. I was, another part of me was across the room standing next to my then- wife looking back at this monster yelling at this beautiful little blondie you know looking up up at me and i was aghast i was like who have you become this must stop 
I, I'm embarrassed to admit it. Now, thank God I've never hit my kids, you know, um, I've never put them in danger. But just knowing that I'd become this monster that I'd never wanted to be, at least not, listen, there's a time and place. I'd love that if I'm deployed somewhere <laughs> on the right bad guys, I will scare the shit out of you, you know. But to a small, innocent, my daughter, for crying out loud, mm. that was one of the beginnings. I was like, you have got to change. This is not who God meant you to be. This is not who you want to be. Do the hard work. You know, stop the talk and do the hard work. So I, I, I lay dollars to donuts that that resonates with some of your viewers. Yes. You know? Yes. Larry, what is your former spouse never heard from you? Oh, wow. That is a great question. Um, probably I forgive you. Um, um, she heard me say, I'm sorry, plenty of times. I've, I've really apologized. I've, I've gone, I've gone deep into about what, um, but, um, there's that. And also I haven't had the guts to tell her, here's what I really needed. I think as men, we don't tell people, what do I need? What did you need? I needed love, acceptance, respect. Um, yeah, probably respect more than any, anything else. Um, cause I do feel like she loved me. Um, but there were times where I felt like she didn't like me and I wouldn't like me either in the condition that I was in, to be honest. <laughs> what, yeah. <laughs> I'm just being real, dude. <laughs> Larry, listen, you, you mentioned something just a second ago where you were like, if I was deployed and there was a, a bad guy, then I was going to show that part. Have you ever done clandestine stuff that you haven't told your family about? And when I say this about, now I'm not talking about war. I'm not talking about in your military side. I'm talking yeah, about like life. you, you hearing your, your daughter talk about a boy and then you go and have a talk with him before she ever knows. And that she never knows yes. because yes. my dad, my dad, and I'll just give you an example. My, my pop, I didn't know this until, uh, probably six or eight months ago after he passed one of my friends who we call him Debo because he was like Debo from Friday. He was kind of the neighborhood bully. Um, he was, you know, not liking me at the time. And my dad was the football coach. And I never knew this until just six months ago. But my dad pulled him aside and had a talk with him. And he was a lot bigger than me. And he would have whooped me into next week. And, yeah. and But he stopped messing with me. But my dad pulled him aside and, and let him know and, and had a conversation with him. And it was, it was amazing to see my dad's strength. In mm -hmm. that, and to, I mean, the protection side. So, yes. has 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 Larry uh, had had those, um, you know, secret conversations to let uh, let the person know that uh, that challenge was solved, and then your kids still don't know it to this day? Yes, yeah, I did it for my son once, and um, and uh, what I encourage set the stage, uh, set the stage. Well, for I, us. I don't want to go into detail because I know that the kids <laughs> that I talk to has now turned into a big fan okay. uh, All right. of, of mine. And so I don't want to give away too much, but I will say okay. this, um, that he was bullied and I don't want, I wouldn't call it bullying. 
because bullying, I think, is an overused word at this yes. point. Yes. Um, but he was pushed around a little bit, and, and he, my son was a little bit smaller at the time. Um, and so I encouraged, I know this is going to make a lot of people mad, but I said, talk to him first, be firm, let me tell you how to do it. But if he takes a step towards you or it's going to get physical, you got my permission to go all out. I know that's going to piss a lot of people off. No, that, that know? should, that should not. I mean, and if it pisses you off, then you need to work on it. Like, you know yeah, what I'm saying? I, I, that's your thing. It's not my thing. Right. Because I believe that every, I would say every child, but definitely every boy needs to be in at least two fights, at least two fights, one that he wins and one that he loses and loses badly. One will teach you the feeling of victory and knowing that you can do it. And the other one will humble you. And that you know that you're not going to win every fight, right? So, um, if you win every fight you're in, you're beating, you're picking on <laughs> the wrong people. You know, <laughs> you need to be fighting up constantly. That's what I did in martial arts. It's what I did throughout most of my life. When I was going through martial arts, when I was a white belt, I didn't want to work out with the white belts. I wanted to work out with the green belts. When I was a green belt, I didn't want to work out with the green belts. I wanted to work out with the black belts, right? That's how you get better in life, right? So anyway, so I did have a conversation um, with this kid and it was more just like, you know, the, the, what I did with my daughter, it was kind of one of those things. I just kind of like stood over him, looked down at him and said, just basically shook my head. You know, my son. Yes, Mr. Broughton. That's all I did. <laughs> you know. And I walked away. <laughs> was this at school? Was this at this, school? Was it at the ice cream parlor? Was, Had he just walked out and got some frozen yogurt in Orange County and he saw the Hulk coming at him? What, where was this at? <laughs> yeah, this was at the school. This was at the and school. So, this was at the school out in the, on the field. What, um, what tone of voice did you do? Did you whisper? Because like, if a man like you whispers, I'm course. scared. Yeah, of course you whisper. Well, first of all, there's other parents around. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, listen, if you need to raise your voice, if you're a man, you need to raise your voice to a child. There's, you're not a man. Ooh. And you know about this, anything, right? When you lower your voice in a conversation, that's how you get their attention. This is the problem I see a lot of people when they're doing negotiations is that they pitch up instead of going down. It just turns into, la, 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 it gets all crazy when people start fighting. But if you're the person in the room, when you go down in tonality, that you start getting people attention. So you just, you just dropped a bomb right there, Larry. <laughs> you just dropped a bomb right there, man. So, so, so do me a favor. Act like I'm the kid. Just whisper and say, like, say, cause I want people to understand the gravity of this situation. Because if you haven't met Larry, I hopefully all of you get to meet Larry cause it'll change your life. But Larry, honest to God, like I, you blocked out the sun when I, when I met you, <laughs> I thought it was nighttime and I was, was like, just no, that's just, aura. that's that wasn't just my physical that, stature. That was my aura. That's just, no, no, the physical, <laughs> the aura was shining bright, but I was like, damn, like it just turned night. No, that's Larry right there. Yeah. Take us, take us through it. Like, look at me and, and, right. and tell so in, in was, the same voice. All right. So I, without giving away too much, each year they would have this, um, what they call it, this field days where all the, all the classes would compete against each other. Right. So parents are there, teachers are there, all the schools there. And, um, and so I saw this little interaction between um, Bullet and this kid and Bullet had told me about it before. And, um, 
and Ben was loved by everyone. So for whatever reason, we couldn't figure out why is this kid doing this. But sometimes bullies or mean kids, they get somebody in their sights and he just can't get it off. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm just walking around and I kind of like, you know, like a sheepdog pulls a sheep away from the herd. I just, <laughs> and he was little and it was more of the body stuff where I was stood up tall, shoulders wide, leaned over a little bit, looked down at him and he looked up at me and I just said, you know, my son, right? Yes, Mr. Broughton. And I just shook my head and walked away. <laughs> And Ben thought that, hey, I spoke to him today, and it was a great day today. And yeah. <laughs> good. Keep it up. <laughs> have you have you ever had to have that conversation with boy, like a boy that was trying no. to holler at your daughter? No, no, no. None of them ever had. Well, I think like I wasn't joking earlier when I said it. I intentionally spoke at their schools. <laughs> and you didn't lead with human, did you? Oh you no, didn't, you didn't did lead with. No, believe me, it, when they introduced my, me, they definitely said. And I, th I think, in fact, I think they included black belt in martial arts or in karate <laughs> and green beret. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I intentionally did that because I wanted to make sure, listen, I'm a protector by nature. Uh -huh. I don't want to have to go out and fight. And so why not use tactics where I don't have to expend a whole lot of energy? I mean, if I had to, Listen, my daughter, you've met my daughter. She is a cutie patootie. Yes. She's got guys chasing her, right? If I had to talk to every boy or now young man who um, pursued her, there would be, you know, I'd be, I don't know, running in circles, I think, right? But I think I had to do very little of that because of the other thing I was talking about earlier. Yeah. We built so much love into those two kids you know, they had so much confidence that they were loved. They didn't have to go out and get attention from somebody else. They just didn't feel the need for it. That's what I believe. Now, I may be wrong. I may have, I mean, psychologically, I may have that totally messed up, but I don't think so. I mean, I, the, the proof's in the pudding. I see the shit show that some of my daughter's friends are going through dealing with human interactions mm -hmm. and boys and can't call them boys they're in their twenties at this point, young men. She's not having those problems. So, so Larry, the, the foundation, I want to, I want to stick on that, but we're going to shift the gears, the yeah. foundation, right? So once you have that foundation, then yeah. it's like you can build on those things and let's go yes. in the business, the business side of it. Okay. I think you're the first person on the podcast ever to be as, as vulnerable as you were, as far as talking about your business. Mm -hmm. I, and I want to compliment you on this. But what I and what I find is a person who are and, and just help me to understand if you agree with this or you don't or you can help me with it. Okay. Most of the time, a person who's got to the mountaintop and maybe fell into the valley, um, they have the the I, I see that their chances of getting to the mountaintop again. I mean, it's like, oh, well, I fell off. I'm going to go and do it again. Um, before the podcast started to, we started to record, you started, you talked about some figures that to a lot of people would intimidate the, the bejeebs out of somebody, but you talked about them just like it was just natural and normal. Um, do you find that it's easier to get back to, or simpler to get back to that place once you got there? Sure. Or is it harder to be able to get there in the first place? No, you've proven that you, you can do it. You've proven it to yourself. You've proved it to other people. 
-hmm. and particularly the way that we took this beating during the pandemic. It's not a secret. Everyone knows that the economy was shut to F down, you know, and it's not any fault of, it's not my fault crying out loud. Listen, we're talking about business. So let me give you a couple of statistics. The average business in the U.S. has, I think, 23 days of free cash flow on hand at any one time. That's it. 23 days. Okay. Back then, we used to have about 120 days. And I thought I was all about, look at me. I'm so much better. But when you go, and so when you think of a downturn, let's say, okay, all right. So they're predicting a recession next year. All right, our business is going to drop by 6% next year, 10%, maybe 15%. Who the hell ever budgets that your revenue is going to be going to drop by 100% the next year? You don't budget for that. And everybody knows it, right? And so all you can go on is your track record and your and your reputation, right? So I know that I've done it before. Other people know I've done it before. And so we do it again. But this time we do it even smarter, right? We're putting less debt on deals that we're doing now, right? Because we know that it's going to turn at at some point again, right? Interest rates are a lot higher than they used to be. So we're just making better deals and we're doing it with better team members. Um, And we're making sure that our investors and and clients are more aligned with who we are. So, yeah, frankly, I don't trust anybody anymore that hasn't gone through at least one, hopefully two recessions and come out, you know, if you come out smelling like a rose, something's up to me that one of my mantras is if you're not failing, you're not moving fast enough or getting close enough to your fullest potential. Okay, you better be failing. If you're not failing, you're not moving fast enough or getting close enough to your fullest potential. Too many of us get afraid of failure, Kelly. You know, I remember giving a keynote speech at a big conference a few years ago and I was talking about failure and there was this woman sitting in the front row, not front row, but she was the front row of tables. Um, you know, you go to this thing with the round, the, the round tables and she was sitting at that front table and she had her arms crossed. And, and so finally it came to Q&A. And um, so people are asking questions. And finally, I just pointed to her. I said, you clearly have a question. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? And she, so she took the microphone. Failure is not an option. And I said, failure is the only option. (laughs) And she just got fired up. And so I had to explain to her, you know, change doesn't happen without failure. Innovation does not happen without failure. Learning does not happen without failure. The first time you pick up a basketball, you don't make it to the NBA. The first time you run around the track, you do not make it to the Olympics. You fail a lot. Right. Failure is just that necessary struggle called learning. How about that? (laughs) Right. Learning fuels courage. Courage changes everything. Right. And so, yeah. So this, whatever we're calling, I don't know what we're going to end up calling this period that we're hopefully coming out of at some point um, in the future. But um, uh, yeah, I I think that we're going to come back bigger, stronger, definitely brighter than we were before. Um, and now I'm doing it because I hate to say this, but it's true. I'm motivated by, I'm going to show you, (laughs) I am going to show you 
you know, you can't knock me down, government. This is not, here's the thing. It wasn't a competitor who came in and opened up a hotel across the street from us. It wasn't that our vice president of sales took the book of business. It was the federal and state government who did this, right? And so I'm, I want to, and I, I commend a lot of these, some of these restaurant tours and businesses who stood strong during the pandemic um, and said, you know, we have a greater cause. We have to serve our team members. We have to serve our clients um, during all of this. But I'll just say it again. I don't trust someone who's never had failure in their life. And so if you are, let's say that maybe you're not a business owner, but let's say that you are a, a somebody who's trying to get a job someplace. I would encourage you to tell the interviewer that, yeah, I've had failures. In fact, I've had a lot of failures and here's how I have overcome them and talk about it confidently. Here's the lessons I've learned from it. And if you're a business owner and you're trying to get a new client, I think you should say, yeah, Here's, the, here's where we have failed with clients in the past, but here's what we've learned and here's how we will never make that mistake again. I think we ought to do more of that than pretending that we're all perfect and that sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows every day. You know? I, I Listen, when you go through a storm or a hurricane or whatever and you make it through the other side, there's this camaraderie that happens with the other people that have gone through it with you, right? Um, and there's lessons that you learn live in that space, you know, don't shy from the opportunity to, to fail and make mistakes. Wow. So Larry, with the hospitality side, um, with all of my, with all of my friends who are in special forces, and I want to thank every single one of them for their service. I want to thank you for your service. Every single one of them sees things that I don't see. Right. Mm-hmm. So we'll be sitting and one of my friends, uh, he wasn't special forces, but he's a, a martial, uh, one of the top level martial artists and he's a, a bodyguard and uh, he's in security. His name is Brian Gates. I love you, Brian. Uh, if you're out there uh, listening, I love you so much. We went to a steakhouse with my wife. My wife, you'll absolutely love her. I can't wait for you to meet her. We're sitting at the steakhouse. He sits in the corner facing the door so he can see everything. Smart man. Okay. I understand this from his security background. But then we're talking, and I said, Brian, what do you see that I don't see? And he was like, he went in. He, he changed a little bit. He was yeah. like, you, you see that hostess stand over there? I got my eyes on that. Just in case the active shooter comes in, I'm going to turn that over. But before I turn it over, I'm going to throw Brooke inside of it, turn it over so that way she's safe. And then you and I will turn over this table, and we'll be able to do this. And I was like, whoa, this, I was just here to get a steak. Mm-hmm. So Talk to us about the the special forces kind of training, seeing things different, and how you translated that into hospitality. Because I think that yeah. uh, you know, in in high level hospitality, you have to see things that the guest doesn't see. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that gets pounded in your head in the special operations community um, is five point contingency plans. They're basically if then scenarios. And it's hard to turn it off. And this is what your buddy was doing. If this happens, I'm going to do that. If that happens, I'm going to do this. I'm going to respond this way. And so you kind of do it five layers deep. After that, who the hell knows what's going to happen? (laughs) Right? George Patton had this great quote that says, a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan next week. A good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan next week. So basically set a plan and go after it with gusto. 
don't worry about the stellar plan or the awesome plan or I need to get my full color printer before I can do that. Just move the F out, right? Um, well, why do we say that? Well, there's a saying that says, no plan survives contact with the enemy. When the rounds start coming down range, that well-developed plan that you had goes out the window. <laughs> Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. It's the same concept, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, make contingency plans. Um, and so, yeah, so we're constantly doing that. Another thing is uh, after action reviews. You've been in business for a long time. Um, a lot of people don't do this. They, they develop a marketing plan or they develop a new product or they develop a new service and they launch it and it's an absolute failure. And so what do they do? They go back to the drawing board. Instead of a critical step, you get all of the key players together and you say, without placing blame, what did we do right? Write it all down. What did we do wrong without placing blame? What did we do wrong? And how can we improve the next time? We do that after every critical hire, after every critical firing, after every strategic initiative we put together, after every marketing initiative that we do, so that we become a learning organization and we're constantly asking questions. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? And how can we improve the next time? So those are two lessons. Another lesson is this. Never underestimate the power of a small team who shares the same vision. Okay? Small teams can outmaneuver and outperform better funded, larger organizations every day in the week if they believe in the same thing. So in special forces, um, on special forces A teams, um, the average, I don't know, I think the lowest IQ is 120. Okay. Or maybe it's the average IQ. I forget which it is, but these are all smart people. These are not people who are, you know, Neanderthals that are getting on special forces, A teams. They're type A's, they're hard chargers, right? Um, alpha males. Okay. Kelly, in a, in the business environment, if you put 12 people like that into a boardroom, what do you usually get? Pandemonium, fisticuffs, <laughs> somebody's got to be the top dog. So how is it that the Green Berets can put together arguably the most elite teams in the military? It's because we share the same vision. We're willing to subordinate our own personal goals for the success of the team. Now, when you're doing it right as the leader of the organization, personal goals can be met at the same time that the professional and team goals can be met, right? And so all of this assumes that you as a leader are articulating what is the vision? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Who's really our client here? What's the big why on this? So you got to communicate. I hammering this home to anyone who, who will listen to me these days that um, the best communication during times of chaos is over communication. All right. I was blown away um, at the stories I was hearing three years ago when the pandemic hit, how many CEOs went into the bunker and was not communicating with their team members. This is not an exaggeration. In that first month, I'll bet you I got a dozen link. This, this is just LinkedIn, one social media platform, a dozen LinkedIn messages from people who are employees who hadn't heard from their CEO about what their strategy is going to be. You know, even if the strategy was wrong, they weren't even hearing from their CEO. They were sending it to me 
because they had been following me on LinkedIn or wherever it was. And I was constantly like trying to be the cheerleader. Here's what we're doing, you know, trying to get the, the word out. Like, this is not the end. I don't know when the end is coming, but you know, this ain't it yet. We're still fighting. I did a public plea. I could predict, not predict, but I could see that we were going to run out of cash. You want to know how humble, how humble I got? I did a public plea for people to ask for cash. We need this much money. I think we're going to run out of money at this point. And if you got it in your heart and we've caught, and we've done anything good in your life, I'd appreciate it. I don't care if it's five bucks or 500 bucks. How many CEOs have the balls to do that? <laughs> but I knew we were going to need it. Right. And I had so many people. Now I had some people who say, Oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. But it was pretty well thought out. I didn't, you know, I had a pretty good message and I went from the heart, but I received thousands. I mean, thousands of messages from people saying, wow, that's the most courageous thing I've ever seen a CEO do. Um, but you can't go dark in times of chaos. You have to over communicate to your team. And I did learn that in the special ops community, uh, as well. You got to communicate to people. That's how you get buy-in, you know? So those are some of the lessons I guess I learned. What are some of the things when a person goes into a, a Broughton hotel, you know, that is going on that they don't realize is going on? And I'll, I'll just give you an example quickly. Yeah. Is when, when, with our, with our, uh, when we had salons before we sold them, huh? um, there was a woman <clears throat> came in and uh, got her hair done. And I, uh, the, our music had gone out, so I had used an a internet radio. Yeah. our playlist had gone out but so I used the internet radio and I thought I'll just throw on some Christian stuff because that's not going to offend anybody right because some you know you could always offend somebody but I thought this yeah. won't offend anybody at all it's uplifting whatever it was yeah. the lady in the chair is like oh wow this is mine and my son's song and I was like I just struck gold right mm -hmm. and she was like blah 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 and then about five minutes later she is just like almost doubled over crying. Oh. And I was like, you know, what, you know, and I went up to her, how are you doing, ma'am? Is everything okay? And she said, yeah, I told you that this was my, mine and my son's uh, song. And he just passed away last week. <laughs> and what I realized and what I created in the, uh, what we created in the salons and all over our place is we took every bit of recognizable music out of our place. And we only did foreign music, uh, non-lyrical, or things that had not been popular because we didn't want to evoke any emotion, whether it be positive or negative, we wanted them to be able to focus on the specific situation. Now, this wasn't something that I told every guest that walked through, but this was something that I was very conscious of that created an yeah. environment where a person was safe. Can you talk yeah. to us about a, uh, some things that you do? Because this part, I, I, this yeah. lights me up, that yeah. you do that people don't understand. Well, there's a couple of things. Um, we think, or we try to get into all of our team members' heads, is that when people travel, um, there's a sense of trepidation and fear that goes along with it. There's buyer's remorse. You could probably booked a hotel online before, and then you wonder, okay, is it really going to be what you know they say it is online? So we try to put people at ease uh, as much as we as much as we can. Um, and so I go through a whole story when we acquire a new hotel about there's no higher calling than serving other people. 
and that this is a service industry, right? That um, we make the food that fuels people's bodies. That's pretty intimate, right? Mm. We clean the rooms where people are naked. There are very few legal businesses besides the hospital or medical industry where people get naked in our business. That's pretty intimate, right? So we need to recognize that there is a level of vulnerability that our guests have that they don't have when they go to a restaurant or they walk into a retail store where the typical client interaction might be a matter of minutes. With, when somebody comes to a hotel, it's at least, it's generally more than 24 hours. It's one and a half days on average. That's the length of the interaction that we're going to be having with somebody. So there's an opportunity to build a relationship there, right? Um, but it all comes down to that we're in a people business. And so because of that, what we try to do is not just help our team members become better employees. And I don't like that word. You've heard me use the word team member a bunch of times. We could talk about that later if you want. Um, but we try to make them help them become better versions of themselves as people. If they're better people, they will be better employees. They'll be better team members. And so we do that for through a variety of ways. Um, we have a corporate chaplaincy program based out, uh, in, the, in the organization that's based on the military chaplaincy program. It's non-denominational. Um, and the chaplain's role is just to walk around. You know, they visit the hotels, you know, generally once or twice a week and just check in with people. How are things going? Do you need anything from us? Um, and it's confidential. So the chaplains will know things that I don't know. The, our team members learn over the time to trust these folks that if they go to their, um, if a team member is having marital issues, if they're having, they had a DUI, if their son is in jail, they're not going to, they generally do not come to their supervisor for fear that there's going to have some kind of retaliation or we're going to look at them differently. Or it's going to have some kind of negative impact on their employment, right? But if they go to the chaplain, the chaplain can give them resources, you know, to help get the kid out of jail or to offer some kind of marital counseling or um, help them if they, you know, have a miscarriage or whatever it is. The only thing that I get is a summary of what happened. At this hotel, we had this many conversations about this. So at this point, why do I want to know that? Because if a specific hotel is having a bunch of team members who are complaining about marital issues, guess what? We probably have a work environment problem there, right? Just like if people are having problems at home, they bring it to work. If they're having problems at work, they're taking it home. We don't live in this vacuum. <laughs> we just don't. And so I'm always looking for trends on this kind of stuff. So we have this corporate chaplaincy program. And so when we do surveys behind the scenes, like we always survey our team members on a quarterly, I think it's a quarterly basis. Um, it's called a confidential work climate survey. We sometimes will ask what if, if you had to, if we were to get rid of all of the benefits and you can only keep one benefit, which would it be? The chaplaincy program is what most people want. Wow. That's the value that they see in this darn thing. Right? So that's pretty interesting. Um, what they don't see is me walking through the hotels or walking through the home office when there's no one there and praying, oh gosh, I'm going to get emotional and praying over each of the job work stations of people, you know, um, because I know that most of these people could go work anywhere, but they're choosing to come <laughs> work with us. 
I owe them something, you know? Um, so they don't see that. Um, they don't see the struggles that these team members have behind the scenes. You know, some of these people are going through divorces. They're having mental issues. They're losing children and they're still there at work trying to serve you as the customer, as the guest. We have lost so much respect for the service community. It breaks my flipping heart. You know, um, one of the things I do when we're uh, hiring managers is I try to go out and have a meal with them in public. Now, why do I do that? Because I want to see the way they treat the service staff. If they treat the service staff with disdain and ugliness, I don't want them on our team. Wow. I just don't. You know, I want to see how to, you know, if they choose to pick up the bill, what kind of tip are they giving? Right? So I try to do those kind of things because we're trying to attract good people um, to, to the organization, right? Um, what they don't see going on behind the scenes is the way we try to build teams by serving the communities. Um, and, um, you know, like when before the pandemic, uh, we would, I forget what day, of the, I think it was uh, the first Friday of every month, we would stop what we're doing at noon and stop and make sack lunches for the homeless and for Orangethorpe place here that, uh, for an after-school program for teenagers. And so we'd make about a, about 200 sack lunches. And um, there's an opportunity just to stop. And if, if you were a client or if you were in a meeting, the meeting stopped and you came and you joined us. <laughs> there, there was not, it was a non-negotiable. <laughs> and you helped us make these sandwiches and these sack lunches. So why do we do that? Again, I want everyone to know that our job, we are in the service industry. And if we can't stop and serve people in our community, we're not going to be able to serve you when you come in at nine o'clock at night, tired from a long day on the airplane, you know? And so we try to get our team members to understand there is a level of humility that goes with service. And just because you humble yourself in front of somebody doesn't mean that they are better than you or that you are lower than them. The greatest of people who have ever walked the, the earth have stopped and served and washed other people's feet. There's power. There's power in that kind of stuff, you know? So that's the kind of stuff I don't think you, anyone would see, but it's part of the culture of an organization who chooses to be in the service industry. But it does break my heart that we don't, that the service workers aren't given more respect from those that they're actually serving because they're in the service industry. They're not in the slave industry. Mm-hmm. So I don't know Larry, if that's what you were looking for, but well, I, honestly, you, you, <laughs> you're given way more than I, than I'm looking for. This is oh, amazing, <laughs> man. Um, you said something quickly and you, you said we could come back to it and I want to come back to it. You said exactly. the word, word employee and then, uh, and uh then team member. Why is yeah. that so important? Because I think if you call your folks team members, you treat them like, I mean, sorry, if you call them employees, you treat them employees, they will show up like employees. How do the employees show up? Is it payday boss? Thank God it's Friday. Ugh, it's Monday kind kind of thing, right? You've heard of this quiet quit phenomenon that's working through, <laughs> yeah. right? That's what you're going to get. I learned this in the special ops community, right? I don't care what rank you are, but if you're on the special forces, a team, you are a team member. You know, you could be a master sergeant, but you might be a, a young buck sergeant, right? But the master sergeant is still going to treat you with dignity and respect. We're on the same team, brother. 
you know, and you call each other by your first name, you know, it's not Sergeant, whatever you get on a team and it's all first name, you know? And so everyone wants to be on a winning team. If you're on a team, you have a common agenda, you have a common mission, right? And so we try to call everyone. There are times when legally we have to call people employees. It's documentation, that kind of stuff. Yes. But other than that, we really try to call each other team members and treat each other like team members um, because I think people just show up differently when you're on the same team. When you're on the same team, you want your team members to be successful. You do. I mean, even like I, I wrestled for, since first grade. From first grade until I graduated in high school, I wrestled every year. Now, that's kind of an individual sport, but you are still a team member. If I get pinned, I'm bringing I'm bringing zero points to the to the team meet, right? So even in that scenario, I'm on a team. But if you've been in basketball, soccer, anything like that, you want you want everyone performing at their highest, right? Because the competitors are going to say, "Oh, that left wing really sucks. Take everything to that side of the field," right? So um, I don't know. I just I pre I prefer folks who want to be on a team rather than just be an employee. I, I just do. And another thing that we don't allow in our organization, you can't call me, hey, boss. Why is that? Because we're on the same team. Wow. Okay. I have a, she won't mind if I say this, but I have a, one of our team members who works very closely with me in the early days, her pre two previous jobs, it was very hierarchical and she was not allowed to make decisions. And she was constantly coming to my office. Hey boss, what should I do about this? Hey boss, what do you think about that? Hey boss. I was like, finally, after about three days of this, I said, number one, don't ever call me boss because that tells me you don't want to make a decision. You want to deflect. I'm not paying you to just, I could do it myself. If you wanted me to make all the decisions, I want you to make decisions because you're going to bring a different perspective to the situation than I am. That's why I hired you. Now, if you really don't want to make a decision for fear of whatever, I want you to come to me and say, Hey, Larry, let's talk about this for a second. Here's a situation. The next step is not Larry. What would you do? You'd say, here's a situation. I think we ought to handle it this way. What do you think about that? So that she's bringing, she's already trying to solve the problem in her head. And I said, I can guide you from, you know, five degrees left to right on it. But then you're going to see kind of what's the, what, what, how wide is the lane that, that you can play in? I'm okay with that for a while. Can we try that? And now she makes decisions all the, all the time, right? So I get leery of people, hey, boss, hey, boss. I get that they're trying to sign of respect, but I'd rather, hey, teammate. Hey, coach. <laughs> hey, Larry. <laughs> We're humans here for crying out loud. <laughs> I think there's a theme <laughs> on this, this conversation. <laughs> Larry, is there anything that you can't train? Well, I, I think you can train a whole lot of things. I think there are, uh, my gut started to think integrity, you know, but I think you can, can you train it? I don't know that you can train it, but you can certainly model it. For sure, you can model it, right? Years ago, I had a young guy who I just saw tons of capacity, and he's no longer in our organization. He's gone on to do bigger and better things. And, you know, when you call yourself an incubator for entrepreneurs, it's hard to whine when they leave and go do bigger and better things, right? 
but I'm still whining. I still want him in my organization. But he came to, he wasn't with us for very long and he moved up the ranks in the organization to a pretty senior position. But his first role in the position, he came to me and said, hey, we don't have a big budget and we're going to do our bit. This is our first big, um, what do you call it? Um, trade show. And, um, you know, our trade show booth, is it's, it's okay. But what if I go over, I don't even remember what kind of equipment. He, all I remember was he wanted to get a couple of uh, TVs to put at the, the trade show booth so he could play a revolving loop of our the video that we, we had done, right? And he said, I can just go over to Office Depot use them for the thing and I can bring them back after the trade show and it's not going to cost us anything. Great idea. Right, Larry? I said, no, it's not a great idea. <laughs> Where's the integrity in that? No, no. And he, he was flabbergasted. That's it. So I did describe to him where the integrity lapse was in that. Right. Um, and so I said, if it's that important to you, here's my credit card. Let's go get them. But we are not going to use someone else's equipment under the guise that we're buying them and then return them. That's like going to Nordstrom, for getting a dress or a suit for a big event you're going to, not taking the tags off, and then afterwards you turn the sweaty suit back into to Nordstrom. I know people who do that. That doesn't make it right. <laughs> Right. But I, but by me modeling that little thing to this team member, he got it. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have it in you where you want to live a life of integrity, you're not going to live a life of integrity. Yeah. So I, there are probably other things, but that's the kind of thing that comes to mind. I can model integrity. I don't know that I can train integrity. I don't know. I, I'm open to a conversation about that. I'd have to yeah. think about that a little bit more. So Larry, what do you think? We, well, I, I think that um, one, one person said to me that you could lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And he was like, but you can add salt to their diet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought it was amazing because I think that, you know, in coaching people or in that, you know, spending time with people or leading people, um, yeah. there's there. Uh, I'm very much in the thought process that anything is possible, but do I want to spend the energy on it? Does that make sense? Where yeah. early on in my career, I used to take, honestly, it would be like, if you can breathe, I'll take you. And, but, and so I wasn't looking for a couple prerequisites that I could build on. I was like, I could build you from nothing. And, um, so I guess for me, it's, do I want to spend the energy to get them to that point? Um, but I, I honestly, like I, I've seen so many, um, I, I really haven't seen much in, in life that you couldn't teach. Well, certainly I think if you're talking to skill sets, those types mm -hmm. of things, yeah. there's some people who have a higher capacity to build that whatever mm -hmm. piece of equipment than, than someone else. There's got to be a, you know, you got to have the cognitive ability to do that. Yeah. Some have it, some, some don't. Um, but I, I, I know what you're talking about. Like most things that we do in the hotel or hospitality industry, we can technically train them to do it. But mm -hmm. do they have the conative ability to yeah, do right. it? That's the difference. We've got the Stoics used to talk about, Aristotle talked about the conative brain all the time. And then there was a couple centuries where we didn't even, well, at least a century where we didn't talk about the conative brain. It started to come back maybe 30 years ago. 
Uh, but the Stokes were talking about the cognitive brain all the time. So what's the cognitive brain? Well, we've got stuck in the cognitive. The cognitive is what can go on a resume? What am I trained at? What's the experience that? What kind of education do I have? Cognitively is basically how do I reflexively reply to stimuli? If I'm stimulated, do I amp up or do I retreat? You know, and there's four different modes yeah. that they really get into, right? And it's really important that we understand that, right? So I could train somebody how to clean a room. I can train somebody how to wait a table. I can train somebody how to be a chef. But are they going to be good at it? Are they going to like thrive mm -hmm. in that, right? Because I can tell you an accountant is going to respond a lot different. If I, if I force my accountants to go out and do sales, oh, they can do it, but they're not going to be effective at it. <laughs> I could bring in my really popular, bubbly salespeople and put them in the accounting office. They could probably do it, but the numbers aren't going to be right. <laughs> There's going to be all kinds of commingling of funds, and it's going to look pretty. They're going to have fun doing it, but it's going to be a crap show probably, right? But here's what I'm wondering. So here's what we try to do. We try to identify during the interview process, what are the core values that these team members have? Because if we can get in alignment with their core values, at least most of them correspond with our core values, then we're, we're on to something here, okay? They're more likely to stick around if we share the same core values. And then what we do is we administer for most people that we bring into the organization. If you're a supervisor or above, you take the Colby A index, which measures the cognitive brain, and the Clifton Strengths assessments, okay? And then we bring you into the organization. I don't need a bunch of people built like me. <laughs> That's the last thing you want. <laughs> people who hire mini-me's, we're gonna have all the same problems. Right? Like I'm not, I could share with you a bunch of my weaknesses, but that means I'm gonna have a huge hole in my organization. We wanna have complementary strengths throughout the organization, right? But if we all share the same core values, boy, um, and then you get people working in their strengths, what you see is positivity in the organization goes up, which means productivity is gonna follow right after that, right? So with studies, um, Success Magazine did a study when it was 2013, if I remember it correctly, you could have the best CRMs, the best um, calendaring systems, you know, the best systems. And they you see incremental stuff. But then when you add in positive work environment, you see this hockey stick of productivity. Okay. So the biggest thing you can do to increase productivity in your organization, which by the way, increased productivity equals increased cash flow. You want that, right? Is to have a positive work environment. Wow. Because you can grind people down constantly and be a micromanager and it's my way or the highway and you can be the leader who steals other people's ideas. But that won't last for long. People will get burned out. They'll leave. It's just not a good way to do it. So positivity is the, the way to go. But get people who share the same core values. Get positivity by getting people working in their strengths. Wow. Where were you when I first started as an entrepreneur? This would have circumvented. <laughs> Struggling right along with that, you. That, that's what I'm saying, Larry. Like, that's why I'm going to be your friend for the rest of your life. Like, I'm going to force you. I'm going to be knocking on the door. I'll be like, I found you. You're, you're going to be moving. Uh, you know, your kids are going to be like, uh, Dad, why'd you move? Because <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to not uh, have Kelly come to my door all the time. Um so, so Larry, I think one of the coolest things about you is is your laugh, man. It, it engulfs. Oh, really? like when <laughs> the first time when we spoke, like when we were yeah. when we were there in Orange County, um, at a crazy experience too. By the way, the Raven Drum uh, Foundation, who is a sponsor of the podcast, a big yeah. shout out to them. And oh, twelve, 
12 Drummers Drumming. I don't know if you got to see the, have you seen the documentary yet? I have, yeah. Okay, phenomenal, amazing. Yeah. But when yeah. we were there, like this laugh, it almost frees everyone around you. Oh. But you you wouldn't think that coming from if I was to list out Green Beret A Team, I was to list out CEO founder, I was to list out speaker and author and all these things, I wouldn't be like, well, damn, like one of the things I'm going to walk away with is this this belly laugh that is just wh- what causes that and what brings that um, and what brings that joy in your life. Freedom. I haven't always had it. I remember the first time I was able to actually laugh like that. Um, yeah. Freedom is what brings it and courage to just let it all hang out. I used to be so guarded, like everything. I was not even the real me. Um, so you'd, you'd mentioned the speaker thing. Here's a quick example of, I was on the speaker circuit, speaking at hospitality um, conferences and those types of things. And I didn't have, the competence of who I was. I was always trying to copy someone else. And I saw someone else speaking style. And I thought, well, that's how I need to be because I didn't believe in myself. Who the hell are you, Larry, to go up there? You didn't graduate college. You know, you barely graduated high school. Um, you failed at this. You failed at that. You got all these secrets in your life. You know, you got you live on the dark side. You're stealing Percocet and Vicodin from people. You know, all those kind of things going on in my head. But on the outside, I wanted to look just so, right? So remember, there's, there was this guy who he'd read his speeches and he put a punch into every sentence and he had it all worked out and he wore his suit just right. And I was trying to copy this guy and it just didn't feel right. And so I worked at the summer camp when I was a kid and they'd called me and, and I was living in San Francisco at the time. You know, I was starting to get kind of a name for myself nationally and, you know, and so it was, I think, the 75th anniversary, maybe, for the scout camp. And so they wanted me to come back and do the keynote address at this thing, right? And um, kind of small tomboy makes good story, right? And so the intention was that Governor Tom Ridge was going to be there. I think he was the, I think he was the first uh, Homeland Security guy and Rick Santorum. Anyway, there was a bunch of dignitaries that were there. And it was one of those speech, you know, events where it was out on the lawn and you see the stage and all the quote unquote VIPs are sitting on stage, right? And so it's my turn to go up and give my rousing keynote speech. And I had a pretty traumatic situation happen at, at that, that Boy Scout camp. And um, I get up there to do it and I look across and I see right where this situation had happened. And all of a sudden I was this little boy, 15 years old, who'd been raped by two guys at this Boy Scout camp. And that's who I became standing there at that podium. Okay. My knees started shaking. My voice was cracking. I lacked any ounce of confidence. I couldn't even tap into who the fake person was, let alone the real me. The real me. I didn't even know who the real me was. I've been living this fake fraudster life for all these years. Right. And so I was shaking. Did you see the movie broadcast news Mm-mm. with, I think it was Mel Brooks, it's Holly Hunter, okay. William Hurt. And so, um, Brooks's character is this kind of like the behind the scenes researcher in this newsroom. William Hurt is the attractive guy on camera and Brooks hated Hurt because he was the pretty guy getting all the attention, but it was really the smart guy behind. Well, finally Brooks is given the chance to be on camera and he realizes this is harder than I think. And he's just had this flop sweat to the point where viewers are calling in wondering if the guy is okay. Right. 
Well, that happened to me. So it was going so poorly. I think I was supposed to talk for 35 minutes. It was like halfway through and I just cut it short and said, I'm done. And I went over and sat next to the guy that I grew up with, who was the one who, who called me to come be at this event, to speak at this event. And I sit down and I just shake my head and I looked over at him and I could tell he was pissed. And I said, I'm really sorry about that. And he is, by the way, he was a Catholic priest at the time. <laughs> and he looks over at me and says, are you okay? Like that. Are you okay? Not like he even cared. Are you okay? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, good. I was about to call an ambulance. I thought you were having a heart attack up there. That's how bad it was. Okay. So I go from there, Kelly. That was on a Saturday. On Monday, we were having a leadership summit for my company uh, in San Francisco. And I was supposed to be doing more like the opening talk on this. And there were like 40 or 50 managers, most of them who were reported to me. And I go and I say, what's going through my head? The little gremlin we were talking about earlier. Who the hell do you think you are? You just bombed in front of all these people. You're going to bomb again. You suck. Who do you think you are? Kind of thing. And sure enough, I get up there and the same thing happened in front of all my team members who report to me. You think that's going to undermine my credibility? So I went to my assistant. Her name was Katie. And I said, Katie, I don't know what you need to do, but you need to get me 30 talks in 30 days. 30 talks in 30 days. Wow. Right. And so why did I do that? Well, because I knew that if I was going to do 30 talks in 30 days, I couldn't prepare for them. I was just going to have to show up and just do it. I told her, I don't care if I'm speaking to a Girl Scout troop. I don't care if I'm speaking at a men's prayer breakfast. I don't care if you have me at a chamber conference or a corporate event. Get me 30 talks in 30 days. And wouldn't you know it, she did it. Now, there were some days where I didn't have any talks, but I can think of a couple of Fridays where I did three talks in one day. I did a breakfast talk, I did a noon talk, and I would do like an evening reception for somebody. Sometimes there were five people and sometimes there were 150 people, right? What it forced me to do is to find my own voice, to be the real me, to have fun, you know, and I felt a freedom for that. And I remember the first time laughing on stage during this process and people laughing with me instead of being this serious, I must be taken seriously all the time. You know, I must be considered the successful person. Like who the hell cares? Are you real? Who are you really? Who are you? People long for that, Kelly. They just want to know who are you. And thank goodness, for good or evil, for better or worse, people are recognizing they want to do business with people. People doing business with people. Isn't that a great place to be? It's like almost come full circle. You used to know the grocer. You used to know the butcher. You used to know the mechanic. And now it's all just these nameless, nameless, faceless people. So that was the first time I remember laughing on stage and connecting with people. Don't you connect? You want to be around happy people, not dour, pessimistic people. And I remember at the same time um, having this awakening about two months prior to this, the guy who was technically my boss and my partner in this company said to me, he said, you know, there are some people who think that you're, and these are the two words he used, dour and pessimistic. And I'm in the hospitality industry. <laughs> right. And so he said, you know, you, just need, you need to be aware of this. And he was, he was good about it. He said, cause I know that's not who you really are, but that's how you come across dour and pessimistic. Wow. So, um, 
anyway, so it was, I learned to laugh out of like, when you are yourself, there's a freedom that comes with it. Yes. And it's almost like an F you like it or not. This is who, this is who I am. Like, I don't care anymore. I really just don't. Um, now I care enough to shower. I did brush my teeth before I came on here. I put on a clean shirt. There's a little bit of narcissism in all of us or we wouldn't be doing those things. I do want to make an impact in people's lives. But beyond that, I don't care whether you like me. And you know why I don't care whether you like me or not? Because I know that if the real Larry shows up, you're going to like him. Wow. I might not agree with everything that you or anybody else says, but if he's just like many of the people we there are a lot of people that I don't agree with belief wise or philosophy wise, but because they're real and they're not pretend, trying to pretend that there's somebody they're not, we can have real conversation that we can laugh at each other. Like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, you know, and they know that I'm just joking with them and they don't take it personally. And we just have fun along the way. So laughter, I think is one of the, uh, um, the winning secret, weapons that we could have, we should have, uh, in our arsenal. It's so, about you. One of the things I'm sure that attracts people to you is you are constantly laughing. <laughs> you're always having fun. Is there a post you've ever done on social media where you're not laughing, smiling, or having a good time, even poking fun at yourself? Hello. <laughs> well, I, I, I thank you, man. Um, you know, I, I started the podcast, Larry, because of my kids. Uh, you haven't got yeah. to meet them. I got to meet Emmy. Um, yeah. And hopefully Emmy gets to meet Maddox and McKenna. Yeah, I'm sure they will, yeah. And I started the podcast because of those two, because I wanted to take iconic figures like yourself. And I wanted to show them that uh, life wasn't about being a superhero and being perfect. It was about having oh. the right attitude and having yeah. crazy work ethic. And, yeah. Um, so yeah. what what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna, and if you could use both of their names, and if you could call yourself Uncle Larry, it would be awesome. <laughs> hey, Maddox and McKenna, listen, there are a couple of tidbits I may want to leave you with here. Life is a struggle. <laughs> it's not always going to be fun and games, but it's the way you approach life and the failings that come along uh, each day. Um, but the truth is, a good attitude is really super powerful. Now, a good attitude is not going to guarantee victory, but a bad attitude will guarantee defeat. Okay. And also encourage you surround yourself with people who are bolder and brighter than you are, who will be your cheerleaders from time to time when you need them. But more importantly, be the cheerleader for other people uh, in your life and just fight on, fight on, be tenacious, find that grit in you, because I promise you this, there are a lot of people who on the outside might look like they've got it all together but they quit as soon as it gets tough. Tenacity eats talent for lunch. Go get them. Uncle, Uncle Larry, Uncle Larry <laughs> dropping bombs, <laughs> dropping bombs over Baghdad. Yes, uh, man, it's, a, it's incredible to, uh, to spend the time with you, my man. And right yeah. now is the time where I want to thank every single person that's listening, that's watching, because every single one of you, not any paid ads. We have, Larry, we have never done any paid ads. We have never uh, paid promotion, any of those things. But all the people that are listening and watching has turned this podcast into the top 1% globally. And that's wow. because of all of you listening. We just got the, uh, the, the notice that we are in the top five shared podcast also globally. And that's wow. because of all of you. So I'm going to ask you to do what you already do. Share it with your friends. 
share Larry's wisdom because we need more Larry in our lives. And I want to I want to thank every one of you out there uh, for our sponsors. Um, make sure you click the links and do all the things that you know you need to do. These sponsors have been riding with us since the very beginning, believing in something that they could not see. They had the faith in us. And I just want to thank every single person out there. Um, Larry, it has been, I mean, unbelievable. I can't wait for you to listen to this because I don't think you realize the, the wisdom and the, the fire that you mm. dropped today. Good. It was it was absolutely phenomenal, and uh, I just I want to thank you, my man, and I want to thank you for Thanks, that, bro. and I want to thank you in advance for allowing me to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life. <laughs> All right, friend. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a joy. Thanks, Kelly. This has been you're, awesome. Thank you. You're, you're incredible, Larry. You're officially you are too off the hot seat. <laughs>